Okay, everyone. Um, thanks for waiting. Uh, we're going to get started. Um, thanks for coming to the seminar tonight on God, Sex, and Desire. So I want to explain a few things and then introduce Josh to you all. So um, the plan for the evening is that um, Josh is going to come up and speak um, for about half of the seminar. And then um, we're going to have a five-minute break. And during that time, um, you can go to the back. We're going to have cookies. So you can um, go ahead and help yourself. And then also, if there's any questions that came up um, that you'd like to submit privately, you can write it down on a sheet of paper and then put it in the basket in the back. Uh, so then in the second half of the seminar, uh, we'll do a Q&A with questions that were already submitted. And then if, what, with whatever time is left, we'll do the rest of the questions. And again, if there's a private question, just go ahead and um, submit it in the back. So I'm super excited to have Josh here with us. Um, yay. Don't clap yet. You got to wait. Um, so who here has heard of regeneration? Oh, great. OK, cool. Um, so regeneration and what did you say? Oh, cool. Well, you've heard of it. Um, so regeneration is a ministry that helps those seeking wholeness in the areas of intimacy, identity, and desire by inviting them into community marked by truth and grace of Jesus. And Josh has been the executive director of um, regeneration since 2006. And Josh has also um, been a part of regeneration since 1999. Uh, and he's a pastor, speaker, writer, and blogger. And he also authored um, Rescue, which you use at Regeneration in Singapore, anywhere, yeah, anywhere yeah. else. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in that um, ministry is a year-round discipleship program for men seeking deeper intimacy with Jesus as their source of freedom from sexual sin. Um, and he's married to his beautiful wife, Jamie, and has five children. Um, and Josh is originally from Colorado. And then when did you move here, Josh? Uh, 1996. 1996, yeah. cool. So you've been here for a while. Yeah. Um, and on a personal note, uh, many of you guys know Ivan. So Ivan and I have both, <laughs> smile. Ivan and I have both um, been part of Regeneration for a little while. Ivan much longer than me. And um, we've really benefited from this life-giving ministry. And um, during the q and I'm also going to ask Josh more about regeneration and the programs that are offered. So um, during that time, you can learn more. Um, but, so I'll hand it over to Josh. Um, and first, I guess I'll pray for you in yeah, the evening. Uh, so let's pray. Uh, Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to gather as your church and to learn about your intentions for our bodies and our sexuality and the goodness that is in um, those things. Father, we pray that you would uh, speak through Josh now, and we thank you for how you've gifted him and how you're using him. Um, and we pray that you'd use him here tonight. Um, we pray our hearts would be open to um, the beauty that you have for us in um, our sexuality. And we pray that um, our hearts would be open to uh, the beauty of your truth, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jen. Hey, thanks for, for having me. All right, I'm going to... I'm going to move this up a little bit because I feel like I'm far away. Um, so I want to start with just sharing just snippets of about four different stories with you. 
And uh, the, the first one is a story of a woman named Samantha Pugsley. Anyone heard of Samantha Pugsley? Samantha grew up in a, in a fundamental Christian home, fundamentalist Christian home. Uh, at 10 years old, she took a, what was called a purity pledge. She committed herself, I'm not going to have sex until I'm married. I'm going to be a virgin until I get married. And uh, she, she kept that pledge, even though it was very difficult when she was um, growing up. And some people looked at her sideways, kind of wondering, you know, what's, why are you doing that? She dated the man who eventually became her husband. And there were times where they wanted to be sexual before they got married, but she powered through and she kept her commitment. On her wedding night, she was expecting that things might not be incredibly easy because people said, yeah, the first time might hurt. But part of what happened for her that first night was that she, no one told her. I want to read a direct quote. She says, what they didn't tell me is that I would be back in the bathroom after sex, crying quietly for reasons I didn't yet comprehend. They didn't tell me that I'd be on my, that I'd be on my honeymoon crying again because sex felt dirty and wrong and sinful, even though I was married and it was supposed to be okay now. Okay, story number one. Uh, next, there's, there's, I'm going to give some pseudonyms here because these are, are folks that I know. But So Tim. Uh, Tim's first sexual experience was uh, when he was about eight or nine years old and he was molested by an older brother. Um, it was confusing for him, and he, he, he was definitely not okay with it, but, but he kind of rolled through life. Uh, his dad was not in the picture from an early age. His mom actually uh, died when he got a little bit older, but um, he, he, somewhere along the line, fell in love with Jesus, and he became a passionate follower of Jesus. He fell in love with his high school sweetheart. They got married. They had three kids. His kids grew up, they had kids, so he's a happy grandfather, successful businessman, a leader in his church, and at that phase in his life, um, he started falling romantically for his best friend, another man, and he was this close to leaving his wife, wrecking his family, leaving his church, because he, he was head over heels for this other man. Okay, that's story number two. Then there's Tanya. Tanya met her husband before she came to Christ. Um, she met him when she was married to another man. And uh, she and her future new husband became uh, sexually involved while she was still married to her, her last husband. Um, it was, her first relationship wasn't good, but that was, didn't make it right. Um, she, bro she divorced her first husband. Then she and her, this, her, her new boyfriend both um, came to Jesus. They met Christ. And they decided, we want our relationship to be different. And so they actually cut off having sex um, they got engaged, and then they eventually married. Uh, five years into her marriage, sorry, about like six, seven years into her marriage, it came out that she had had multiple affairs. And since then, she and her husband have been in marriage therapy. He is working through forgiving her, um, but they are still battling, and it's not, it's not certain their marriage can survive, and that's been probably seven or eight years ago that they started working on this. Um, and then there's my story. So Jen mentioned that I first came to Regeneration back in 1990. Nine, that's when I came on staff. I actually first came to Regeneration in 1996. So I remember uh, a time when I was, I went to school out in Colorado, Colorado State University. And um, as a Christian, since the age of about 12 or 13, I had a steady diet of pornography. Uh, I, I ran across it at a relative's house. This was pre-internet. And I had just a regular intake of, of porn. And as, when I came to Christ in high school, I, I knew something was wrong with it. I, I knew that I wanted to stop looking at it because it wasn't what God wanted me to do but I couldn't stop it. And there seemed like my, my sexual desires was over here and my spiritual desires were over here. They never seemed to come together, except maybe in times when I was repenting and telling God how sorry I was for going and looking at porn again. This one night at Colorado State, I remember I'd just been in the student center. Now I had discovered internet porn, and I, I don't even know if they have computer centers anymore on college campuses, but um, 
but they did on my campus, and I had just been looking at pornography. And I remember walking across the campus. It was late at night. There was nobody else around. And I remember just looking up at this big black color of sky, and I, I was just praying. I was kind of crying out to God angrily, and I was praying something like this. Lord, I love you, and I know that you love me, and I hate this stuff. I hate that I keep returning to it, and I know that you hate it. So why don't you just take it from me? I keep praying that you will. I'm doing everything I know to do. Why won't you just take it from me? And then I want you to hear what I heard in response. That's what I heard. Nothing. I didn't hear anything. It was just this dark night, and I, and I won't forget it. Um, I feel like it was many, many years later that I started to feel like I got an answer for him, why he didn't just take it from me. And it was an answer, the answer why was actually really good news. These are all stories of people who at some point along the line were walking with Jesus, and, and all of them, as far as I know, are trying to walk with Jesus today. And they're all wrestling with this stuff we call sexual desire. And their, their experience of God and their experience of their sexuality and their experience of sexuality, spirituality and sexuality seem like they are so far apart. And, um, and I think all of them, all of us, in our own way, are asking the question, why did God make sex so stinking powerful? All the stories I share with you are, are filled with destruction. There's really bad stuff happening, life-altering stuff. And I would bet if we were to pass the mic around here, uh, maybe not, I would bet if... if uh, if we all do were, to, were to think, we could all point to things that we've experienced either personally in our lives or in our families, and we'd say, I've seen the destructiveness of sex. I've seen how destructive it can be. Whether it's what it can do to a person's body, what it can do to their mind, how it can enslave a mind, what it can do to relationships. Some of my early memories as a little boy were of a close relative weeping because of the infidelity that she experienced in her marriage. Um, sex is incredibly powerful. Why did God make it that way? Wouldn't it have been a little bit better if there's just a little less atomic energy, if the electricity were turned down just a, just a scotch on sex, a little easier to manage? Wouldn't that be better? I want to talk to you about um, some of the reasons why sex is so powerful. And I want to start with this. Sex is powerful because God made it powerful. It is not a device of the enemy. God, or Satan, didn't kind of conjure up sex in some evil lair. He didn't think, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trip human beings up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get them to, like, uh, just to be falling uh, head over heels for things they shouldn't. I'm going to get them to lose power. How am I going to do it? I'm gonna, ah, something called sex. He didn't, there's no chemistry set that Satan used to make sex powerful. God made sex powerful, and he made it incredibly powerful. And I actually believe that he made it more powerful than most of us know. So as powerful as it, as it has been in our lives in destructive ways, God actually made it even more powerful in positive ways. Our problem isn't sex. Sex is a, is a problem in humanity, but not because of what God designed in sex. Sex is a problem because of sin. Sin is the real problem. And that's so important for us to get our minds around because, like the, the woman I shared her story at the very beginning, she had confused in her brain um, the difference between sex and sin. And maybe her church had too because she grew up with this really distorted view of sex. And so on her, mar on her wedding night, she couldn't enjoy sex with her husband because she couldn't separate that it was a guilty thing. I remember um, years ago going on to uh, Facebook. I was just, we're getting ready to do some work with teens. And I was like, I wonder, I wonder if this purity pledge thing is still around. I remember it when I, when I was a kid. Um, or We didn't do it, but I remember like hearing things about like, purity and the importance of purity growing up in a Christian home. And um, so I just did a search on Christian groups for the word purity. And repeatedly, I saw statements like this from teenagers. They'd say things like, I'm committed to remaining pure until marriage. I'm going to be pure until, I, until the day I get to have sex with my husband or my wife. Now, something's wrong with that statement. Can any of you hear what it, what it is? 
Yeah, what's, what's wrong? What? I, tell me about that. So, okay, that's great. That's great. So, so there's kind of this, like, this self-determination. So we can try to be pure. We can try to be sexually pure according to, the Scripture would say, according to the flesh. Like, it's my own doing. I'm going to do it. What else is wrong with that statement? I'm going to stay pure until marriage. Yeah. What? Until marriage, yeah. What are you going to do after marriage? Well, then I can be impure. But I think, I think, it, I think it reveals like, that, that a lot of us sort of views of sex. Like, it's permissible there. It's allowed there. Like, almost like it's a guilty pleasure. And this is the only place that it's okay. That's not the way God views it. Sex within marriage, as God designed it, is powerful and it is pure. And if, we, and, and if, we, if, we, if we're confused about that, then we're going to go sideways with it in so many different ways. And I think you'll understand that more as, as I talk. Um, so whether it's in how we're raising our kids or how we're talking to ourselves about our own struggles with sexuality or how we're viewing others around us who are wrestling with sexuality or how we're trying to disciple younger men and younger women, we've got to get clear that our problem isn't sex, our problem is sin. And there's a difference between those two. Um, let, me, let me make a, just kind of a, a throw out a premise for you. God designed sex to be plugged into something and with the fall, sex got unplugged from that source. And that's our problem. So I think another way of, of thinking about it is that when sex is plugged in the way it's meant to be plugged in, then it is pure, and it is powerful, and it is good, and it is life-giving. And so then the obvious question is, if that's true, then what's it supposed to be plugged into? And the easy answer, and it's going to sound like a Christian answer, but I'm going to unpack it a little bit for you, um, it's supposed to be plugged into God's love. And let me say it a little, bit, a little bit differently. Sex, as God designed it, is meant to flow from his love. It's meant to flow out of his love. So it's not the most powerful thing on the planet. God's love is the most powerful thing. But sex is one of the expressions of God's love that's meant to flow through us, through man and woman. Um, and sexuality, as a desire, is meant to be a part of that flow. So whether you're married or single, we're all sexual creatures. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit too tonight. Um, and that's a good gift from God, and it's meant to be plugged in to God's love. Okay? All right. We have to start here then. So if we're going to talk about sex and love, we have to talk about intimacy and identity. So Jen read, like, regeneration is all about intimacy, identity, and desire. So I want to talk about intimacy and identity, um, because these, these are an integral part of our whole conversation about sex. So let's talk about intimacy first. Intimacy and sex are always meant to go together. Another way of saying it is this. Sex is always relational. It's always relational. There's no unplugging it from sex. I said before, I, I said something about sex, and I referred to it as an it. But sex, when we properly understand it, is never an it. Sex is never an it. It does not exist as an, as an isolated thing, right? So let me, I'm going to ask you some questions, and you help me with this, okay? Um, when somebody uses the expression in advertising, sex sells, what are they actually saying? So if sex is not an entity by itself, it's not a thing, what are they saying when they say sex sells? What's that? People selling themselves? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think that's close. It's something, something in that ballpark, right? Yeah, good. Desire for intimacy cells? I think that's part of it too. You're getting deeper. That's good. Yeah. What's that? They're talking about it like it's a commodity, isn't it? Yeah. 
And, but, but the reality is that sex is, is in, we're talking about people. So the idea of sex cells, if you're talking about sex cells, the images that you're going to see are not an image of some thing. You're going to see an image of a person or of people, right? So let's go back to what I originally said. Sex is always relational. Sex sells. So what about this? And then we're going to be a little bit more uh, kind of uh, into the realm of, of the kind of the dark turn of sex in our culture. People would say, like, you know, you can, well, you know, in, in certain places you can buy sex. What do, what do people actually mean by that, to buy sex? And I don't mean, you don't need to get graphic, but I mean, like, what are we talking about? What's that? Buying, buying porn. And what's in porn? People. Yeah. So we're not, like, like you can't buy sex. You're actually, you're, you're, you're paying money for a person to, in, in, to be involved with you in some way. Right? Sex is relational. It always is. How about this? The phrase solo sex. So this might be one place that people challenge me. Hold on, hold on. It's not always relational. What about solo sex? Or if I could, you can plug your baby's ears. Masturbation. Is, is, what, is, what is solo sex? Solo sex is, is just, it's, it's, a, it's an individual, and this, you could say the same thing about, um, about fantasy. It is an individual person. That person has to be involved, right? There's, it's not by itself. Um, but that person is, is in their mind or through some means, like they're emulating a relationship, right? They're acting as though there's a relational thing going on. Now, I work with a lot of people who wrestle with issues like pornography and masturbation. And I've yet to meet anybody who... Uh, can, I, can we just go PG-13 for a minute here? Um, okay. <laughs> I've yet to meet anybody that, that um, as they're wrestling with trying to give up masturbation, actually think about themselves being by themselves while they're masturbating. Like, it's always trying to emulate something. It's trying to create a, 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 a fantasy world where there's someone, someone else exists. I remember talking with a man who described it this way. He said, you know, he's like, when I fantasize and, and masturbate, um, uh, it, it almost feels like I'm, I'm in this other world and I'm, I'm embraced, I'm held, I'm wanted, I'm loved. And then when it's all over, it's like all of a sudden the party's over and everyone's cleared out and they didn't even say goodbye. And I'm there by myself and I feel embarrassed and ashamed and alone. Just like that, all of a sudden. Because he was living in, this, in a fantasy world that there was something relational happening. So sex is relational. Always, 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 always. It always is. Even in the most... Um, despised and awful expressions that you can imagine in our culture in sex. There's always relationship going on. It might be a horrible relationship, but it's always relational. Um, so that's the intimacy part. And, and we can already, you can already kind of find yourself maybe going like, oh, I didn't feel like intimacy, or that's not intimacy. Like, so hold that thought. The other piece is identity. In any relationship, or in any loving relationship, there has to be an issue of identity. Identity and intimacy are always related. Um, they, actually, they actually are intricately related. Because in order for you to be intimate with somebody, there has to be a somebody. Actually, intimacy requires two somebodies. And, and not only that, but if, you, if we really want to know somebody, if we really want there to be intimacy, um, you actually have to really know somebody. And we live in a world, I actually was listening to this podcast uh, over the weekend, and this guy was talking about, this was so cool how he talked about it, he talked about when he was in college, he was dating this girl he thought was just beautiful. And um, he was so um, kind of amazed that he, that he got this girl. 
And he noticed this, that, that in, his, in this relationship, they'd spend time together, and the longer they spent time together, uh, the, the, the pattern they got into was it would always become physical, always become physical. And if they just kept going, it would become sexual. Um, and his girlfriend, I, I don't know if she was a believer or not, if she was, like, what her story was, but she eventually came to him and she said, where's this going? She's like, don't get me wrong, like, you're great at making out, but what is this really about? And he couldn't answer her question. And he was kind of perplexed. So he went to an older man in his life and he sat down and talked to them and the older man was like, here's your problem. You have no idea how to pursue her heart. And you have no idea how to pursue her heart because you have no idea about your own heart. You've got to know your own heart before you can pursue hers. So he ended up taking the, the advice of this older man and he broke up with this girl that he loved, he was wild about. And he went on this kind of year-long journey to pursue his own heart, to figure out what was going on in his own heart. And, he, and as he talked in this podcast, he said, you know, what, what eventually happened for me is that as I learned kind of the topography of my own, my own heart, the landscape of my own heart, I then became more able to pursue her heart, to ask her questions that would help her get after her own heart, for me to understand what was happening in her heart. And this is what he said that I thought was so profound. He said, in our culture, we use the words romantic. Typically what we're talking about is, what do you need to do to set the mood so we can move towards sex? He's like, that's just a crappy definition of romance. And his new definition is romance is knowing how to pursue someone's heart. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? So again, like whether it's your own, because you wrestle with relationships, or you're thinking about raising kids, like, um, or, or you're even just kind of like um, wrestling with how your, your marriage is going, like what's your, what's your own capacity to understand kind of the movements of your own heart? Do you even make room for that in your life? And then, do you know how to pursue somebody else's heart? Kind of get to know somebody else's heart. Um, I think that's a, it's a beautiful expression. So, and do you hear in that whole story some themes of intimacy and identity and how they're connected? He didn't know himself, identity, so he couldn't really be intimate with her, which is intimacy. And one of the things he said at the conclusion of this thing, he said, you know, he said, we live in a culture, and he's like, it's really sad. He and his wife, this woman, have now been married for about 15 years. Um, he said one of the hard things for him now as he walks with younger people is that there's so much seeing each other's naked bodies without any ability to know each other's hearts. Isn't that, isn't that, when you put it that way, isn't that kind of crazy? Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you see my... Ann Voskamp, one of my... Um, she's a writer I've read, but I've, I've never, read, never even read one of her whole books. But she says, she told her boys, never let anyone see your naked body if they are not worthy to see your naked soul. Isn't that nice? Ann Voskamp is her name. Never let anyone see your naked body if they're not worthy enough to see your naked soul. Oh, I got five kids. I would love for my kids to take that ball up and run it down the field. Um, intimacy and identity are linked. Other, um, here's, here's another uh, kind of practical reality for that for us. As we're seeking to become whole people so that we can love other whole people, one of the challenges for us is the reality that a lot of us like to hide parts of ourselves, our struggles, our fears, our doubts, um, parts of us that we think, once somebody knows this, they're not going to really love me. You know, whether it's my past, something about me physically, mentally, emotionally. Um, I, sat, I sat with a man this afternoon who, uh, he was just describing some of his life, and he's like, things are going pretty well, da 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 And um, at one point, he, he was talking about his, his sexual struggles, and, and he, out of his mouth came, he said, ah, you know, or maybe I'm doing it because I'm kind of trying to be self-destructive. It was like a, like a toss-off comment. And uh, 
And I, I was like, but I'd never heard him say that before. And I said, I said, wait, uh, what do you mean, like, to be self, self-destructive? Why would you want to be self-destructive? And his face got really serious. And he said, um, maybe because of some of the things I've done. I said, well, what kinds of things have you done that you'd want to des- destroy stuff in your life? You'd want to be destructive. And he, again, his self-destructive behavior was sexual, just sexual promiscuity. And then he, he, I mean, it was almost like he just kind of sat back and you could tell, I could tell that he was thinking, do I really want to say these things out loud? Um, he ended up opening up about some really, really hard things that he'd been carrying by himself for a long, long time. And Jesus, we prayed, and Jesus did some really cool stuff, I hope, in his life. But um, what happens when we don't let people see the truth about us? I don't mean everybody necessarily, but especially those that we're trying to become more intimate with. Well, the truth is that then they don't really love us. We don't really feel loved by them because what we presented to them is a fraction or a fiction, not us. And so our souls are smart. They're not going to get kind of, you know, we're not going to go, yeah, I really feel loved. And so if we, don't, if we don't believe then somebody really knows me and loves me, then where are we going to take our desire, even our need for love? We're going to take it underground. And there are all sorts of dark things underground. And that's where I think people really struggle with sexual sins and addictions of other kinds and self-hatred and all sorts of disorders. Um, it, is, it is so important. This is one of the reasons I think that Christianity has a great uh, light for the world because we are one faith tradition that holds high the reality that we have dark stuff that is bigger than we can handle on our own. And we have a Savior who loves us just as we are and who makes provision for us in what to do with that stuff. Um, and one of, the, one of the challenges for us, I think, as the church is learning how to do that together and to do that. Um, okay, so um, we can already see some, some problems, right? Um, porn and fantasy, those are expressions of relating with a fiction. Um, uh, the hookup culture or, um, uh, or lust, those are examples of relating to a fraction. Pope John Paul II, the late Pope John Paul II, said this about pornography, and I think it's true of lust in general. Um, the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much. The problem is that it shows too little. And he's talking about the reality of this whole person. Like, you're not seeing a whole person. You're seeing parts of a person. Um, I remember in my own struggle with pornography, uh, visiting an adult bookstore, and uh, uh, I wasn't proud of it. You know, I was kind of sneaking in there. I was a Christian guy. I think, I'm, I think yeah, I, I was working at Regeneration when I did this. So this is probably back in 1999 or 2000. And I was, I was in this kind of binge mode um, in the midst of still trying to break free from my the sexual addiction that I was in bondage to. Since time in this, in this bookstore, I, don't, I didn't even buy anything. And I, I left. Um, at the end of the night when I was trying to go to sleep, uh, in kind of that twilight between sleeping and, and still being awake, I had this, um, it, w- it wasn't a vision in the sense of like, you know, everything else faded away, it didn't feel supernatural, but I had these, these kind of images start popping in my mind. And I want to share the images with you to freak you out. Being in that, uh, in that adult bookstore and these demonic, uh, these demons kind of being in the corners of the store, kind of like up in the, you know, on the bookshelves, just kind of looking down. And they were holding up body parts and they were moving them. As, as if to animate them, to make them seem like they were real, as this, to seem like they were, they were alive. And uh, 
And that, that's just, whether that was, you know, God showing me something that was actually real in the spiritual realm or not, I don't know. Um, but it was, it was a powerful image for me to kind of, that I think really did demonstrate on some level like the, the, the fraction of a person that I was seeing in lust and in pornography and in fantasy. And interestingly, and I, I, don't, I don't look at that and go, seeing that vision cured me. Um, but it wasn't until many, many years later I looked back and I thought, that was the last time I was ever in a doll bookstore. <laughs> um, so they are dark places. Maybe you know that, but um, they're really dark places. Um, okay. Uh, where do we go here? So let's, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about how do we, how do we plug sex back into that source, back into God's love in our lives? And how do we help other people do that in their lives? Um, we have an eviction taking place. This guy's back here. Um, all right. Uh, let's start where Jesus started. So in Matthew 19, actually, I have a printed here. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, and they wanted to test him. Pharisees are always, always looking to trap Jesus up, trip, trip Jesus up. They asked him this question. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Uh, so that, and then this is Jesus' commentary on that passage. He says, So that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. A lot of you probably heard that in, in marriage vows. Maybe if some of you are married, you had that part as part of your marriage vows too. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So the Pharisees said back to Jesus, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? So they're basically, they're basically like pulling the law out and saying, ha, you know, you claim to be a teacher, but we know the law, and the law says you can give your wife a certificate of divorce, and you just contradict what the law says. And listen to what Jesus says, and this is where we're going to start our own answer, like how do we plug this stuff back in? Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. From the beginning. And so Jesus points back to the very beginning, the creation of man and woman, and says, this is the way it was supposed to be. And he unpacks it a little bit, but I want to unpack a little bit, specifically as it relates to sexuality, these issues of identity and intimacy. Um, because so often for us in, in the church and in our own Christian lives, we can start with sin, we can start with the problem, kind of like I did with this talk, and we can miss what the beginning was supposed to be. But if we don't know what the beginning place is, then I think we really miss where we're going. We can't, uh, Dallas Willard said something to the effect of this once. He said, you can't get to Paris by not going to Texas. And so if we want to move away from sexual sin and sexual depravity and sexual confusion and gender confusion, we don't do it by just trying to, we don't, we don't get to where we want to go just by trying to move away from those things. We need to know where we're going. And part of how we know where we're going is by going back to the beginning, into Genesis 1 and 2. Okay? Does that make sense? And Jen, we're done with this part at... Okay, all right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick up the pace a little bit because I'm do. i really excited about getting to your questions too. So, um, all right. So in Genesis 1, I'm not going to, just for time's sake, I'm not going to read it. Genesis 1, 26 through 31. You read this great account. So actually all of Genesis 1. God, it's, just, it's a, the creation account um, laid out for you in Genesis 1. Uh, and in Genesis 20, 1, 26, God says this amazing thing. So he's just created all sorts of things. So just take a moment and just imagine creation, animals, oceans, deserts, canyons, mountains, the sky, the sunset, the stars. Imagine different kinds of animals. The elephant, the rhinoceros, the lion, the peacock. 
the, the, what's, that, what's that kind of squid way down in the ocean that can kind of meld in, look like anything else in its terrain? All sorts of manner of, of different stuff God created. And then he says in Genesis 126, so this is day six, he's making stuff. He's, he, it's kind of like he stops and he's like, hey, now, let's create this last creature in our image and in our likeness. That's not said about any other creature, any other part of his creation. And so this is what he makes, human beings. And the scripture gives one specific characteristic first about what this, what this creature is made. Um, you know what the characteristic is? Tall and short, he created them. Black and white, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And we look through um, Genesis 2 and then even throughout the rest of Scripture, uh, there is something unique about our maleness and our femaleness that bears the image of our Creator. And it's unique in all the planet. So women, do you know? Do you know here? And do you know here? Maybe even do you know here? Kind of, you know, sense it in your bodies. That your design bears the image of God, conveys the image of God on the earth in a way unlike any other creature. And it is glorious and it is good. And no other creature can convey, can bear God's image on the planet like you can. Men, do you know here, here, in your body, that your bodies convey the image of God in a unique way in all of creation and that there's no other creature on the planet that bears God's image the way that you do. You cannot be replicated. Now, let me just give you a moment to reflect. Like, you know, some of you are going, yep, get it, got it. Um, But when you think about that, what kinds of things do you feel? What does it do for you? Anybody? Ooh, yeah, wow. Much higher price than the value of another human being. Yeah. Anything else? Makes you feel special. Yeah, and that's a good thing. Here's the other thing. Male and female bear the image of God different from each other. There are ways that we bear the image of God in similar ways, but there are differences between men and women. Now, I grew up in the, uh, in the, in the, in the 70s and 80s, kind of on the tail end of the, of the feminist movement. Um, and the idea that men and women were different was frowned upon. I remember watching this uh, video. It was my, my dad actually showed it to us. Um, it was, and it was on a, kind of that old reel. And it went something like this. It was an animated movie, and there were men and women on an island. And the men would build and hunt, and the women would garden and sow. The men would build and hunt, the women would garden and sow. Cook, cook and garden, maybe that's what it was. Um, one day, there was an earthquake, and the island was split in two. And it just so happened that the men were now on this island, way, way over here, and the women were on this island, way, way over here. Um, and they could not get to each other, which might have been a commentary on how bad the, the men were at building things because they couldn't build a stinking boat to get over to the other island. But in any case, first, it seemed like all was lost until one brave man and then another and another began to try their hand at gardening and cooking. And over here... One brave woman, and then another and another began to, to brave the world of, of hunting and what was the other thing men do? And building. And they found the men could do what the women could do, and the women could do what the men could do. And all lived happily ever after. And then there was another earthquake, and they moved back together, and they all now did all the jobs together. 
Ah, oh, yay, good message, good message. And the implicit message is that any difference, any difference between men and women is implicitly bad and doesn't have to be there. It's a social construct. That's, that's one of the messages of the, of the feminist movement. It's, it's one of the unfortunate messages. Maybe not everywhere in feminism, but, but certainly it's been a, it was a message that was kind of drilled into me. But God's word says that men and women are different. We are different. God's given us different responsibilities. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at our bodies and go, yep, we're different. Now that they're doing, they, they know how to do brain scans, there's more knowledge about what happens in the human body. Our brains are different. Our brains work differently. Um, let, let me give you a sexual example. Uh, women, um, oxytocin, is a, is a, it's called a bonding chemical. Oxytocin is released in a woman's brain during uh, times of romance and connection, emotional connection. So um, beginning with a conversation over dinner, oxytocin might be released in, the, in a wife's brain all the way through foreplay and sex. You know when oxytocin is released in a man's, bot, in a man's brain? Right after climax. Well, what does that tell you? Now, what, remember, one is not better than the other. Um, they're just different. So let me give you another example. Um, during times of high stress, you know what's released in a, in a man's brain, in a man's body? They're endorphins. They're things like ad adrenaline is pumping through. Uh, um, he's, he kind of goes in that fight-or-flight mode. It was actually some women researchers at UC Berkeley way back in 1990-something who noticed in their lab that during times of heightened stress, the men would kind of hole up and just kind of get down to business, and the women would be like, hold on, hold on, come on, let's stop, let's get Like, What do we need to do to make this different? And they noticed the difference. They said, let's research this. Is there, is there a reason that this happens in our brains? You know the chemical that's released in a women's brain during times of heightened stress? Oxytocin. Well, come on now. So, so think about the complementarity that's there. That word complementarity kind of goes back to, and some, I remember even reading one, one person who said, like, in the, in, um, when, when Adam said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, looking at, at one common commentator said, that, said, in the original Hebrew, it's almost like he was saying, where I am weak, she is strong. And where she is strong, or when, where, I am, uh, where she is weak, I am strong. Did I cut out? Am I good? Okay. Um, so you think in times of heightened stress, you have men, at, on average, releasing more, th more things like adrenaline to fight and to help kind of gather and move um, and with a greater capacity to pull together. That's beautiful. So there's a difference between men and women. So we talk about bearing the image of God in our maleness or our femaleness. Um, that's one aspect of that. I gotta, I gotta speak. I get so excited about this. So my, my, my wife and I sit around with our kids. We got four girls and a boy. And we sit around the table, and I, I, I don't want them to pick up the same messages that I did. And, I, and, and largely, the mess, part of the message I got was that men are kind of bad. Um, they're the ones who've, who've made the distinction. This is a bad thing. Um, so one of the conversations I like to have with our kids is like, what's, what are some of the things that are different between men and women, between boys and girls? And they have, you know, some funny answers and some that you know, we kind of go, hold on, hold on, we're not getting mean about this, you know. Like my little kids will say, well, you know, daddy's scruffy, mommy's smooth. I'm like, yes, yes. That's good. That's a great gift. You know, they bear God's image differently in a complimentary way. My daughter says, um, well, you know, girls have vaginas, boys have penises. Like, yes, that's true. Great. And, and if you can't talk about that here, we're going to talk about it. I'm glad you can talk about it with us. And my, my, at the time, my son was four, and he's like, what's a vagina? <laughs> and everybody's kind of just, you know, like going on with the conversation, and I'll, I'm like, I'll tell you later, buddy. And he's like, no, what's a vagina? What's a vagina? And my, his older sister looks at him and she's like, it's vagina, v v vagina, and duh, duh, don't talk about it. So anyway, that's conversation around the Glazer dinner table. Not always. 
Um, in the beginning, this complementarity between men and women is, is part of what made the sexual union so powerful and so good. So um, the complementarity was not something that was a threat to them. It was a gift to each other. So the husband's scruffiness and the woman's smoothness, all those things, like they could give to each other in that way. Um, they could serve each other in that way. And that's, now we come back to relationship and back to love and back to intimacy. Um, another way of thinking about that is, is after the fall, the complementarity became competition. And I don't mean necessarily like, you know, hey, let's get on the battlefield and have guys versus girls in a football game. So much as there's, there, now we're competing for space. Now we're competing for attention. Now we're competing for worth. We have this kind of scarcity mentality. Like, if, you, if you're called to this, if God has made you like this, then that means there's less for me, as opposed to, I'm glad that's you, and let's honor me. So I think true femin- feminism would actually elevate femininity and masculinity equally and say, yeah, like anywhere that, that masculine or men kind of degrade femininity, that's wrong. We want to elevate it. It's different, but it's equally valuable. Um, so complementarity turned into competition. Um, also, their nakedness before the fall. Their nakedness was a gift to each other. Remember before when I said intimacy, is that kind of, a, somebody said, it, into me you see? I, I believe that this is, um, this is conjecture, but I think there was something before the fall where they actually had a capacity. They couldn't see each other naked without also seeing their naked souls. They knew something about each other. They just knew, and they would get to know each other. And so there wasn't just a, a, a kind of seeing someone as a fraction it wasn't like when Adam saw Eve, he was just like, whoa, check out that body, you know, get over here. And, and she would feel like, you don't even know who I am, I just got here, you know, like, they, they, they knew, like, so, so the old, like, I used to think it was kind of because the, the scriptures were kind of afraid of saying it, but I think when it says things like, you know, Adam knew his wife, I think, I think script, the, the writer of scripture were trying to say, that's the way it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be a knowing, they know each other. Well, what happened after the fall? After the fall, the nakedness, the ability to kind of be known, fully known, not a fraction, not a fiction, but fully known, now this became a threat or a vulnerability or a liability. So now they're, they're staring at each other and they're like, you know, now this is not safe. And so one of the first things they did was to cover themselves up. And, and, and they, you know, they did not want to be seen by the other. Not because their bodies were bad, but now they didn't trust the other and the other wasn't trustworthy to look out for the dignity of their bodies. Christopher West, a friend of mine, he says, um, he, sa- he, he kind of picks on that phrase, like you knock on the, on the bathroom door and somebody's in there and you say, are you decent? And he's like, your response to that question should always be, yes, I'm decent. <laughs> Absolutely. But I'm not sure that your eyes are decent enough to see my decent body. God has made our bodies to be beautiful. So we're not advocating here to, to become a nudist colony, but we are saying like there's, there's something happened at the fall where nakedness now became a liability and a threat to us. Um, so we need to replug back into the, to the love of God as we view each other. So let me, let me um, kind of fast forward here. There's a lot more we can say about this, but I, wanna, I just want to leave time for some practical questions, some real, real uh, issues. Um, let, me, let me just kind of elevate a little bit further for you that... Um, the image of God in male and female, and the image of God in male and female, and the sacredness of sex, and the power of sex. Are you ready? Spirituality, sexuality. Um, in, in cultures across the world and throughout time, where spirituality has, has turned away from the living God, sexuality has become something that's distorted. Um, Christianity is actually responsible for um, really the, the kind of the, the 
the proliferation of monogamy and faithfulness and, um, and remaining with someone and, and not seeing a woman as property, but seeing her as an equal um, partner in the marriage. Um, Christianity is largely responsible for the elevation of, of children, that they're not an afterthought or an annoyance or property, but they actually are to be treated with dignity because they too are image bearers of God. Why did Christianity, why was this so important Christianity? Here's why. You know the number one metaphor throughout the pages of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, is that God uses to describe his affection, his feelings, his relationship to his people? It's not father and children. It is bridegroom and bride. Scripture begins with a wedding of man to woman. Scripture ends with a wedding of our bridegroom and his bride, the church. Our, our ability to bear God's image in our sexuality is something that is, that is worth fighting for, worth returning to him for. So let's take that a little further. Um, in Ephesians 5, Paul writes about something he calls a mystery. He says it's a great mystery. He first gives this commandment to, to husbands and to wives. And my counsel to husbands and wives, if you're, if you're married, is pay attention to your part. <laughs> like, almost kinda, I almost feel like Paul, you know, if Paul were alive today and he was a marriage counselor, he'd say, okay, husband, Wife, plug your ears. Um, or he starts with the wife. Wife, husband, plug your ears. Wife, respect your husband. Submit to him um, as, as though you're submitting to Jesus. And actually, if you look at the verse right before that when he says, wives, submit your husbands, the, the actual words um, submit is not in the, in, in the verse where it says, wives, submit your husbands. It's not in the verse. It's assumed. Some, some of your, your translations will actually have the word submit in italics, which doesn't mean emphasize it and say it louder. It actually means in the original, it's not there. It's assumed in context. The context is the verse before where he's saying to the whole church, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, to your husbands. And then he goes on. He talks about to wives what they should be doing. So um, wives, part of your, your job in bearing out the image of God and plugging into the love of God is submit to your, your husbands. Um, because you are an image bearer of and a, and a, and a forerunner representative of the, the church of Christ. Husbands, now wives, plug your ears. Husbands, now, this is where it gets weighty and crazy. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he goes on to the, to the extreme of saying, like, giving himself up for her on the, on the cross, like, dying for her. Um, it, it would be a shame for husbands to pay attention to the, the wife part um, without paying attention to their part. Like, if you want to quote this passage as a man, you have to quote that part. Um, but then Paul goes into this. This is a mystery. And he talks about how Christ has given up his body for his bride. So let me make some parallels here. Let me make some parallels between the crucifixion and the wedding bed. On the cross, Jesus has In the wedding, the husband leaves his father and mother to be joined to his wife. Christ has left his father to be joined to his bride. On the cross, Christ is stripped naked, and he gives his body for his bride. He even said to his disciples the night before he was, he was betrayed, he said, um, he, he breaks the bread, symbolizing his body. He said, this is my body given for you. This is, it's like the marriage vows, you know. This is my body given for you. Um, in the beginning, part of God's design for that marriage bed is that, the, that what happens in the sexual relationship between husband and wife is a manifestation, an expression, a physical expression of the covenantal vows of marriage. I give myself to you for better, for worse, rich, rich, richer, or poorer, um, sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. Um, why? Because you're worth it. That means if I wake up tomorrow morning and everything in my life is worse, I'm not going anywhere. 
because I see you and I want to know you better and I'm not going to leave. And this is in essence what Christ did when he, when he let himself go to the cross. He gave his body up for his bride. Why? Because he sees us. He sees you. And he loves you. And he wants to get to know you and wants you to get to know him. He gives his life. He pours, now listen to this, he pours forth his life. And where is it supposed to be received? Into his bride, the church. And his life, in a, I don't mean in a sexual way, in a spiritual way, is, in, is impregnated with the, with the life of God unto eternal life. In the way that God designed husband and wife, like the, the wife opens herself to receive the self-giving gift the, the life donation of the husband. Um, she trusts, and she won't do it if she doesn't trust him. <laughs> you know, she has to trust him. Um, and she receives his life, and, it, and if all goes well, um, there's, there's then new life. And that new life is born into the world and grows like the friend I was talking about at the beginning. And then they may marry and have more children. Now, this is not exclusive to marriage. So if you're single here, um, your life is still designed to be that same trajectory. To, to grow and to become a life-giving source to others. That's what love is. Life is, is, is self-donation. So whether as a single or a married, you're actually created to give your life for, for another. Um, and this is what Christ has modeled for us on the cross. So whether we've, we've messed it up big time, I mean, if you're like me and, and sex became something you were enslaved to and couldn't give up and you were kind of just dominated by the pleasure of it, um, if it's something that you, it's, you're, you struggle with, you feel shamed about, um, the answer is, and I don't, mean this, I don't mean this in a cliche kind of way, but we begin with, we open ourselves up as much as we can in trust to, the, to the, our bridegroom who gave himself for us. Jesus came in the body to rescue our bodies. He died um, bodily to rescue our bodies. He went to the grave bodily that our bodies might live. He raised from the dead bodily so that our bodies might find new life. He ascended into heaven. He's going to return bodily. Um, our bodies are not second class. Sexuality is not something that's second to what God's plans are. It's intrinsic to what God's plans are. So let me stop there. Um, there's a lot more I'd, I'd want to say there, but I want to make sure that we just have time for a break and then some time for, for some questions. So um, thanks for listening. We'll take a, how long? A few, a few minutes. Okay, a few minute break and then we'll gather again. Thanks. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Okay, there we go. Thank you. Now we're, now we're going. Cool. So we're going to have about, I think, like 45 minutes to answer a lot of these questions. So it might be cutting it close, but we'll do our best. So there were about, I think nine questions, well, eight questions submitted by our church, and then there's several here, so I'm um, going to get started. 
So the first question is, um, how do you compromise on pleasing your spouse when one is used to the methods of pleasing used in porn? Yeah, read it one more time for me. How do you compromise on pleasing your spouse when one is used to the methods of pleasing used in porn? Okay. Wow, what a great question. All right. So I'm going to take a stab at this. I hope I'm understanding the question um, as it was intended. Uh, it, it sounds to me like um, in a marriage, if, if one of the, the spouses, the husband or the wife, is used to looking at porn um, or has looked at porn, and is interested in, in um, the sexual, uh, to, to be sexual in a way that they've seen in porn with their spouse. I said that kind of in a convoluted way, but, um, uh, and it sounds like the spouse writing the question may not, uh, either one of the spouses doesn't feel comfortable, or is, is kind of not, maybe doesn't feel comfortable, or doesn't feel safe, or doesn't, whatever, with, with the, those kinds of behaviors, whatever they might be. Um, and it's a good question that I think probably even extends beyond that to, um, just sexual relationships between husband and wife in general. Like, there's a lot of freedom in sexual relationship between husband and wife, but, but what do you do when, when, when one spouse or the other is kind of, they, they're just in different places with what they feel comfortable with or even maybe what they think is, is okay morally. Um, so when we talk about sex being something that is an, an expression of, um, of the marriage vows or the marriage intent, an expression of love from one to the other. So let me give you two definitions that I like to use. Um, definition of, of love is uh, self-giving for the other's good. Self-giving for the other's good. The, the definition of lust is uh, using the other for my pleasure, for my selfish gratification. So love is me giving of myself for the other person's good. Lust is me using the other person for, for how I feel, for my pleasure. Notice in the definition of love, it's not uh, self-giving for the other person's pleasure. It's self-giving for the other person's good. And so as, as couples are navigating what's acceptable in their relationship and what they're going to do sexually, um, I, think, I think looking at the, the question of, of love versus lust is important. So as I work with men, here's one thing I'm aware of. Um, a lot of, a lot of people who have, who have viewed pornography have seen lots and lots and lots and lots of images of different people. And lots and lots and lots and lots of images of those different people doing sexual things. Uh, for, a, for someone who hasn't, uh, and, is, and kind of according to God's design, uh, we're, we're really meant to move into marriage with only seeing one person naked and only being sexual with one person. And so by God's design, the husband and wife are meant to come together and kind of explore and learn these things together. One of the things that I think that pornography does, it... it um, it communicates a message that the other person is, um, is repeatable. Does that make sense? Uh, so if, if not you, if you're not going to do this for me, there are thousands and thousands of images that I can go look at to feel pleasurable. And then one of the things that can happen where one spouse has looked at porn and the other um, is, is being asked to do things, they can feel like, I'm not sure you really want me. I'm not sure this is about me. I think you want something of the experience you had with those other people. Because remember, sex is always relational. So it's not that you want something right now, it's that you want an experience that you had with somebody else. And that can feel like a, a real uh, unloving uh, request. 
So um, if, if you're a spouse like me who has looked at lots of pornography in your life and now you're seeking to, to have your sexual relationship with your, with your spouse be something that's a, a, an expression of self-giving for his or her good, um, I'd say uh, it's important for you as much as possible to defer to what he or she feels comfortable and honored and loved by. And like the, I love the old marriage vows. There was a line in the old marriage vows that went something like this, forsaking all others. And so that was out there. That was in porn. That was somebody else. Like, this is, you're the one I chose, for better or worse. Well, what if I don't get to experience that pleasure or that, that activity in my marriage? Well, like, you, you're, you're in relationship with this person. And what is this person comfortable with and feel good about and trust you with? Um, if you're a spouse who's married to somebody who's experienced lots of porn and you're trying to figure out, like, well, would it be a self-giving, a loving thing for me to, to engage in this behavior with this person? Um, that may be a, a, a tougher one um, to kind of navigate through, but I'd encourage you to always begin with that idea that you, you, don't, want, um, you don't want to go somewhere sexually that's outside of what's happening in your heart. They, they're meant to go together. And so if you feel uncomfortable or you're feeling used or you're feeling like your husband or wife wants you to be a porn star, then it sounds like they're asking you to be someone that you're not. And it is okay to say, to tell them that and talk with them about that and say, I, you know, this is not, this isn't me. Um, so, what, yeah, I'll, maybe I'll stop there. But if you have more questions about that or like any, if, if you're asking a, a personal question and you kind of go, ah, I kind of missed it or I'd like to hear more about that, um, we, you know, I, I'm a part of a ministry that, of, of men and women that would be happy to talk to you in, in greater confidence and uh, greater length, so. Thanks. So I'm going to skip around on the ones I said. Yep, great. Um, so the second one is, how do you raise a boy in a world of smartphones and easy access to porn? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, so let me start this question by saying this. Open invitation for any of you who get some good answers to that question yourself and can share them with me. <laughs> we, are, we are really in kind of the first generation of raising uh, kids who are digital natives. So um, digital natives are those who have never known the world without their devices. Digital immigrants, uh, and some of you might be digital natives. I'm a digital immigrant. I, I remember times like when if you wanted to call me, you had to call my home and I had to be there. <laughs> you know, like... Um, <laughs> And if I was over to a friend's house and needed to get in touch with my mom, I literally remember sitting on my, on my friend's floor playing Atari with like the cord from his phone on the wall, like string down the, the steps and sitting there like this, letting the phone ring until my mom got home because I wasn't allowed to be there unless she knew that I was there. So I just let the phone ring and ring and ring until she got there and she picked up. Um, <laughs> I'm a digital uh, immigrant. So we're, we are really walking through a, a season of, of kind of learning together as parents about how, how do we do this. Um, I would say a, a couple key things. One is um, uh, it, it's important for your son to have a, 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 a bigger grid for um, what, where his device belongs. And so in the same way that I'm trying today to talk about like how does sex fit into the overall kind of construct of love, same thing with, with our devices, whatever they may be. And this is true for us adults too. So instead of, like, I, you know, I'm actually writing a book right now with a, a guy, and we're, it's for parents who are dealing with the issue of pornography in their homes. And uh, my co-author is, is very, I mean, like, as a parent, he's very much like, you know, hey, I think it's really important for my kids not to have access to stuff, we, you know, and like, like, lo, like low device time, low screen time. Um, and we kind of just approach that differently. 
Uh, for me, part of what I'm feeling is my kids are going to grow up in a world with devices. They're going to grow up in a world with screens. And while they're young and impressionable um, and willing to go into that world with me, I want to be in that with them. That doesn't mean they have free reign to this stuff, but it does mean that I want to be discipling them in how to use devices. So a couple, couple things. For younger kids, we talk to our kids about what pornography is. So, well, let me start this. We talk to our kids about what sex is. We talk to, about God's good gift of sex and nakedness. And, when we, and we honor that and we love that, and that's, where, that's our first conversation. From there, then we also talk about what pornography is. And we can give a simple definition of something like, pornography is when um, people use God's good gift of nakedness and sex um, for their selfish gratification. And as our kids get online, even when they're very, very young, we can, we can actually literally do fire drills with them. We, we've done this with all of our kids. So you're getting online. If you see pornography, here's what I want you to do. Um, and we, we walk them through that. We also talk to them about um, searches. And so one of the rules in our house for our younger kids is um, if you're going to do a search for something online, if you're going to get online, you need to ask us on any, whatever the device is. Um, and when you are online and you want to do a search for something, you need to talk to us about it. And we're going to train you how to do a safe search. And that includes both like, you know, what's enabled and disabled on the computer. But it also means that if you want to draw a picture of a bunny or a chick, um, that you don't search for the word bunny or chick. You search for the word, you be more specific, and you search for the word um, drawings of bunny rabbits that I can copy, or you know, whatever like that. Um, because you don't want just kind of weird stuff to hop up. And then, and then you teach them, well, if you do see pornography, here's what you do. And I'll give you three steps. And I didn't invent these, and I can't remember the name of the person who did, but um, there are actually reasons in the brain why this is really good. Um, the first thing you do is you say out loud, loudly, and, and with, you know, kind of chutzpah, you say, you say, that's pornography. That's the first thing you do. What that does is it, that saying that out loud activates the prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that is responsible for decision-making. It can get, because um, pornography accesses a, a, a kind of deeper level of your brain and kind of can kind of puts you in this place of like, 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 I don't know what to do with this. So you want to activate the prefrontal cortex. That's pornography. Next thing you do is you, if, if, you're, on a, if you're on a device like this, you flip it over. If, so, if you're on a laptop, you slam the top down. You don't X out of it. Like you just, you shut it. If you're on a screen that happens to be up like this, like you flip it around. Like um, the next thing you do is you come and you tell mom and dad. And you're not going to be punished. There's, there are no negative consequences. The first thing you're going to hear out of her mouth is, that's awesome. Thank you so much for telling me. Um, and we want our kids, we, we actually literally practice that drill. So, okay, son, like you're going you're gonna to line today, like uh, you click somewhere and you see pornography. Let's see what you do. And, they, and we walk them through it because we want them to be equipped. Now, you also know this as a parent. Like if your son or daughter does see pornography, the next thing you want to do is you want to you teach them about um, the reality that what they saw is going to come back into their brain and it's going to come back and it's going to come back and it's going to go back even when they're not looking for it. And so you want to teach them what to do when that image comes in their mind. Because it's not a bad, it's not their fault the image comes to their mind. The pornographer knew it would, and that's why they had the ad up or that thing come up. So your job when that comes to your mind is to start um, activating your brain on, thing, on what else you're going to think about that you like and that's good. And so maybe it's going to be a conversation with mom and dad. Maybe it's going to be thinking about a, um, a place that you like to go, an amusement park you like to go, or a visit to grandma and grandpa's house. But you want to get them, like, like, knowing how to respond to that because the brain is, is kind of wired to remember some of those signals from that experience. And so you want, you want to give them an opportunity to be practicing with their brain to go a different place when those images come. And over time, 
the power of that image and the temptation to kind of go look for more is going to diminish. So that's quick, uh, actually a long answer to, to that question. But that's, maybe, maybe you're, if you're talking about older kids, I might have missed the mark on what you're asking, but I hope that's helpful. That's really good. Thanks, Josh. Um, so next question, um, and this is a lot of content, but um, we're also recording this, so um, if you're taking notes or you want to revisit it, it will um, hopefully be on our church website. Next question is, I'm married and struggling with low desire and fear surrounding sexual intimacy. How can I find healing and wholeness from this? I know sex is good, but I just feel emotionally incapable of partaking. Mm. Wow, thank you for that question. Okay. Um, first thing, you are, you are not alone. There are, there are actually lots of um, people who are wrestling with this in their marriages, and there are lots of reasons that people wrestle with this kind of thing in their marriages. Sometimes it's um, uh, because they, the marriage that they're in, there's been some type of, of um, unfaithfulness in what the spouse has been looking at or who they've been with, and it's just hard to trust again. Trust is a key, integral part of intimacy. If I don't, if I don't trust you, it's hard to be vulnerable with you. It's hard to, it's hard to move into that place of into me you see. Um, it can also sometimes be related to um, past issues related to sexuality, sexual abuse, um, past experiences of, of being um, uh, mistreated or objectified. Uh, and so I think working through some of those past things can have implications for the, for the present. And, and oftentimes I think it's really important for husbands and wives to get help um, both separate and together for this because it can feel um, like for a husband or wife who's waiting for a spouse as they're seeking healing can be a difficult thing. Like how do I, how do I let you know that I desire you without it feeling like pressure for you? And how do I um, let you know that I find that you're beautiful without it feeling like I'm somehow breaching, um, you know, looking or lusting after you when I'm not, when I'm just valuing your, who you are, your body and your spirit. So getting some help processing through that I think can be a really good thing too. So um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of good Christian therapy. I'm a big fan of this ministry called Regeneration. Um, we've got... Uh, um, inner healing prayer groups and uh, spiritual coaching where some of that stuff can be worked through and processed through in a safe and confidential environment. Um, if you're a, a woman, we're actually getting ready to start an eight-week program for women called Women at the Well, and I think there are actually a few brochures in the back, which might be an option for you. But um, Kit Elmer is, is a woman on our team who's walked with a lot of women dealing with different sexual um, struggles. Uh, Dan Kiefer is another guy on our team who has walked with a lot of men dealing with different sexual struggles, and so we'd be happy to, to walk with you and maybe hear more about what's going on for you, so. Okay, next question. Uh, as a single person, how can I see the women in my church as sisters in Christ rather than as romantic relational candidates? I think this would be, and vice versa. So how can then single women in the church see um, other men in the church as brothers instead of relational candidates? Okay. All right, let me... I, I'm noticing that I'm, I'm trying to be gender neutral, and it makes some, some sentences difficult. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer the, the first question about it, um, and, and hopefully it'll translate. But, so for a, guy in the, a single guy in the church trying to relate with women in the church as sisters and not as just potential spouses, how can you, how can you do that? So um, this is a, first of all, let me just say, like, uh, it sounds like the heart behind that question it's really a heart that is um, 
it's in a good place and asking some good questions. Because, um, like, I know I was a part of a, I don't know if your church does this. Um, some churches do, and, and they do it varying degrees of success. But I was a part of a singles group when I... We don't have um, You don't? Okay. That's probably a good thing you don't. Yeah. Because of that. because of that, exactly, yeah. So I lived in Southern Maryland, and, um, in St. Mary's County, and there's a naval base there and a lot of naval contractors. So um, that meant that, that proportionally there were a number of, uh, like, the, I think it was probably like nine to one, like men to women. And so um, there were like probably like 10 guys in our singles group, and every once in a while, some poor woman would walk in and be like, uh, is this the singles group or the men's group? And Yes. So, and there was one guy in there that we actually had to, my, my friend actually had to pull aside and say, listen, you got to knock it off because every woman that walked in was like, he was just like, hey, and trying to, trying to pick him up. And it was just, yeah, they were not sticking around for long. So, um, you know, gosh, I, um, I almost feel like that would be a great conversation to have with some, with some women in the church um, to help them answer that question. But, I mean, like, if, it, if, it's, if the question is kind of connected to... Um, like how you're treating them, how they're feeling. Like I think it's, I think it's really important for, for guys to be sensitive as they're getting to know women about, uh, um, remember when I talked before about the idea of romance is pursuing the heart of somebody else. So I know that in some situations, um, uh, like, and, and remember what I said too about oxytocin, not that we're just chemistry, but like, so um, a man asking good questions of a young woman and, um, and getting to know that person can feel for the, for the woman sometimes like, hey, this is something special. And for the guy, it's like, well, I was just trying to get to know you. Like, um, so I think being sensitive to some of that is really important. Um, I think that uh, the other thing I hear in the question, it may not be there, but it sounds a little bit like in the, in the question, like there is a desire to get married. Um, and if that's there, that's actually, a, that's a good thing. Um, and so if there is some kind of like getting to know people and thinking like, you know, um, would this person be a, a, a good wife someday? Um, that's actually, it's not necessarily like just kind of default mode bad. Um, it actually might be a sign that like God is stirring something in you. Yeah, your heart longs to be married and that's good. So um, I feel like it's a really, really vague, crappy answer. So maybe I need more time to think about it too. That's, that's a great, great question though. It's a great question. I'm going to... Yeah, if you have any more thoughts about it, we can okay. come back. But I did kind of spring that one on you. So... Okay, next one. Uh, how do you break free from promiscuous behavior? Yeah, oh, good. Great question. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you want to. That's a great sign. So Paul in Romans 7 says, the very thing I don't want to do, that's what I keep on doing. The thing I don't want to, the thing I want to do, I don't do. Um, I think one thing to know is like your desire to break free is a good sign that God's working in your life. Um, and the reason that's important is because um, even that desire is, is one of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit working in your life. And um, it's important for you to know the Holy Spirit is working in your life, and you can, you can lean back into that. Uh, one of the first things I'd, I'd say to do if you haven't is you have to break any isolation that you have around this. And so if you're a guy struggling with promiscuity or a, girl, or a woman struggling with promiscuity, um, you have to find other men or other women who know that this is an area of struggle for you and who you can be in regular contact with about this area of struggle. And then from there specifically, like, you need to begin tracking, when is this happening for me? Like, when, where am I most vulnerable to hooking up, sleeping around, um, going too far with my boyfriend or girlfriend or on a date? Um, because uh, what, whatever, like, the moments where you're already, like, the, the engines are revving and you're ready to go, like, 
you've already, you're already, you've already gone to a place that's, that's too dangerous for you if this has been a pattern for you. Um, it doesn't mean you can't stop at that moment, but it just means like you need to get around some people who can help you backtrack like, so you don't even get to the places where the engines are running that hard already. Um, and again, shameless plug, uh, regeneration would be a great place for you to get some support in, in breaking free from regular um, struggles with promiscuity. So we've got a, for men, we've got a, a men's group um, that meets literally 48 weeks out of the year and other men who are saying, look, I, I want to pursue Jesus in this area of my life. I've given myself away way too many times. I want to do this differently. Um, there are women on our, on our staff who can walk with you in other places that not only will help you like kind of like address behavior stuff, it's not just about like putting every, all sorts of things in place so you can stop behaviors. It's about getting after like what's underneath it, what's driving it, what's, what am I searching for in this that I'm going over and over again to promiscuity or to porn or whatever else it might be. So I just, I'll just add something, a little bit side question. Um, when I went, I went through Living Waters, which is a regeneration program this past year, and I thought I was going into the program because I thought, oh, I'm getting married, like I want to receive more healing from like um, sexual sins from the past. But through regeneration, um, Living Waters, it was really, I learned that like, I have huge control issues and I have issues with my parents, um, which I wasn't even expecting, but like those things are so connected to um, my own issues in the past and present. And so that helped, that's even helped me now when I can point to um, what's causing it, like what's underlying, and then um, addressing like the sin that way. So Living Waters was great. Yeah, um, yeah Living Waters. Little plug. Is it? It sounds like a roller rink. Is there a roller rink next? To, <laughs> I, I kind of keep imagining like a bunch of middle school kids kind of <laughs> doing. It's not middle school kids. I'll take you down there later. <laughs> Okay, so next question. Is it right to, and how do you give someone assurance of their salvation if they're struggling with sexual addiction? What's a, what sorts of things might you tell them? Hmm. Is it right to, and how do you um, give someone assurance of their salvation if they're struggling with sexual addiction? Yeah, I think, or we could rephrase it to, how do you give someone assurance of their salvation if they're struggling with sexual addiction? And like, what would you tell them? Yeah. Yeah, gosh, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, when, I, when I was wrestling with to break free from sexual addiction, I was the guy who, you know, every altar call, I was kind of like going, you know, maybe I'm not really saved because I, I keep going back to this stuff. And, uh, you know, that, what I described on the college campus, shaking my fist at God, kind of like, you know, why won't you take this from me? Like, it was pretty quickly followed this stuff. Like, maybe I'm not really a Christian because I'm supposed to be a new creature, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, there's now no condemnation for me. Like, I should, this should, things should be different than they are right now, and they're not different. Uh, so I, I, think, I think one, so a couple things. One, personally speaking, <clears throat> I know that as I, was, as I walked with men and women who were able to point out what I referred to a minute ago as first fruits of the Spirit, uh, that was actually really helpful for me. So I want to give you an example of that from my life. Um, the first regeneration group I went to, every week I would come and I would confess the same stuff over and over and over again, or it felt like every week. And I remember um, one week coming in, and this, I, this, my confession went something like this. Uh, my, my group leader, Bill, said, he's like, so how'd your week go, Josh? Well, not so good. We met on Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday night on the way home, I was feeling so tempted. I literally, on the way home from this meeting, I was feeling so tempted. So I called a couple guys in the group to get some support 
and uh, they prayed for me, and that was good. But Wednesday morning, I woke up, and I was still feeling incredibly tempted. And so I prayed. I went over some memory verses, and da-da-da-da. I went to work. The next two days were just crazy busy, so, you know, that was okay. But then come around Friday, and I'm feeling totally tempted again. And my roommate was gone, and so I, I came home, and I started looking around on the Internet. And, uh, and then I stopped, and I called another guy in the group, and I said, hey, I need some help. Can you, can you pray for me? This is what my situation is. And... Um, then I ended up calling another friend. He came over for, for the movie, and that was great. And then, but then, uh, da da da. And then, but then on Sunday, everyone was gone. I couldn't reach anybody, and so I ended up looking at porn again. And Bill responded to me like this: "Wow, Josh, way to go!" I was like, <clears throat> "Bill, did you hear what I did on Sunday?" And his response was, "Did you hear what you did on Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday?" Like, all that stuff that you did, Josh, like, it doesn't negate what happened on Sunday. And then he asked me this question. He's like, where did that stuff come from, the stuff that you did those other days? And me and my shame and my guilt, my response to him was, like, I, I was like, he's trying to compliment me. But look at Bill. It didn't come from me. I guarantee you that. And he, he just smiled. He's like, exactly. It didn't come from you. Where did it come from? And I was like, the Holy Spirit? Yeah. Holy Spirit is alive in you. Like, that's first fruits. And that kind of thinking, like, that... Like I, like, I think sometimes sexual addiction is all or nothing. I mean, it's just like, this is it. This is, this is, this is the defining factor of my life. That, was, that did not change my life. It actually took lots and lots of conversations like that with, with men in my life who would say to me, Josh, this is not all that you are. Um, and they'd point out these other things, and they'd, they'd, they'd talk about Romans 7, and this, the desire that you have to stop, this says something about you. Okay, with all that said, here's the other thing. Um, pornography is addictive, Sexual uh, sin is addictive in a, in a powerful way. And there's actually an, a, a, a growing body of scientific evidence to talk about changes that happen in the brain because of sexual addiction. So let me give you some examples of that. Um, w- one of the easiest examples is this. Dopamine in your brain is, it, dopamine is the, is the neurotransmitter re- responsible for cravings. And so if you are hungry and you desire food, dopamine is on the move in your brain. If you are lonely and you desire companionship or even sex, dopamine is on the move in your brain. If you're thirsty, dopamine is on the move. What happens with sexually addictive behaviors like pornography is it, um, it ends up like increasing the amount of dopamine that's moving through your brain, increasing the cravings that are going on in your brain. The dopamine receptors in your brain actually begin to figure out there's too much dopamine. This is too much craving. And so the dopamine receptors begin to atrophy in the brain, and, the, and, the, and the, what's producing dopamine begins to shut down in your brain. So it brings back to normal the amount of dopamine that's supposed to be occurring in your brain. What does that do then to the pornography that I, that I use? Well, it makes it less satisfying. So now I want to spend more time looking at pornography, or I want to look at more extreme pornography, or different variations of pornography. I want to stop looking at pornography and go have sex with somebody who's real. Um, increases the behavior of, of pornography. I mean, I talk to guys all the time, like, pornography goes from this, this kind of pornography to, like, this kind of pornography over time. Um, it, it, just, it becomes this kind of, this downward cycle because I, your body's looking for more and more and more. It also means that, that regular natural pleasures that you experience in life, like the joy of a good conversation with somebody, um, the feel of a new pair of socks, or the, the enjoyment of watching a sunset, those things start to lose their pleasure and you start to lose craving for those things because the dopamine that's being released in those, it's not, it's not being picked up by the receptors because the receptors are shut down. And so w- the person then goes back to the sexual activity over and over and over again. The reason I go through all that is to say this. 
um, a person who's, in, who's, in, who's truly dealing with a sexual addiction is uh, part of what their experience is, is their brain is actually working the way it's meant to work. It is shutting down stuff and it's trying to move back to equilibrium. The problem is that the pornography or the sexual activity is out of control. And so their inability to stop and their intense craving and their almost what feels like an, in, an impossibility to like stop the craving and the wanting to go back and back and back um, is, an, is an addiction. It becomes this, this behavioral addiction. And so the fact that they want to do that doesn't mean they're not saved. It means that their brain is working the way that God designed it to work in response to something that their brain was never meant to experience. So anyway, that's my long answer to that question about, about salvation. Um, I will say that the, the assurance of God's love and God's rescue in the midst of our, our sin struggle is one of the most life-changing, life-altering things that we can experience. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Where sin increases, grace increases more. You don't understand. I'm doing, I'm doing this every day. Where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Where sin increases, I think like hearing that kind of stuff over and over and over and over and over again, um, is really important. It doesn't mean that's all the person's going to need. They're going to need help break from the from the addiction. Regeneration is a great place to go. Um, but I think in, in trying to assure them of God's love and His involvement in their life, I think some of those things can help. A lot, I give long answers. Somebody, I was getting ready to do a radio interview one time, and somebody said, like, hey, short answers really help. And I was like, ah, you got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, and these are, like, huge issues, so it's hard to yeah. give a short answer. So I think what I'm going to do now, because we have about 15 minutes left, is I'm going to hand you these questions. Um, you can start reading through them now. And maybe you can choose a few to okay. answer. Um, just ones that like with answers that might more immediately come to you because um, the other questions I gave to Josh before so you could think about them but these um, he is obviously just getting right now so yeah. whenever yeah. you're if you want to take a minute that's fine um, yeah gosh good questions I got water thank you um as a married person, should you feel guilty forever denying sex for your spouse? Um, forever denying sex for your spouse? No. No. Uh, just because you get married doesn't mean you can't say no anymore. There, there are times and reasons and places why a person wouldn't want to have sex. Um, that's true for a husband and for a wife um, in a healthy marriage. So, um, hey, I had a really hard day, and, and really all I want to do is be held. Um, and I, so I don't want to have sex right now. I think it's in some marriages there, there has been kind of a, um, some, sometimes one of the other spouses felt like it's my, it's my, it's my duty as, as, as a wife or as a husband to have sex with you. Um, and I think in general that's true, but it doesn't mean every single time. So in Romans, or in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says some striking things about sex. He's like, he says, one, he says, stop depriving each other. Um, he actually says, wife, your, your body now belongs to your husband. Husband, your body now belongs to your wife. Um, but he does say abs, abstain sometimes for the purposes of prayer. So, um, yeah, and I think, again, in the, in the kind of the contract I was talking about before about, about sex being a part of love and love is self-giving for your good, then it's reasonable to, in order, in, in order to want to be loved, to expect that sometimes when you say no, your husband or wife will say, got it, good, I love you, good night. <laughs> Or let's go do something else, you know? So I hope I answered that question okay. Um, 
Let me read this out loud. I, I, I didn't finish reading it, so I might, I might be. If I understand it correctly, the image of God is shown in humans, intertwined in the naked human body and the human soul. Uh, with this in mind, how are we to distance our sinful minds from a society in which sex and bodies sell? Oh, that's a good question. Um, how are we to distance ourselves? Um, let, me, let me just say a couple things about it, this. Uh, and, and again, if, I'm, if I miss the mark in any of these questions and you want to talk to me more or, or consult somebody else, let me know. But um, uh, I, I feel like I can't say this enough because part of my Christian upbringing really like did try to distance us from sex in general. And I was probably like that first woman I talked to at the beginning that had some sense that like sex is dirty. Uh, I remember even after I got married, feeling some level of like, you know, is this okay? Like this, you know, I spent so long kind of thinking this is a bad thing. Is this really okay? Um, uh, but I, th- I, th- I think one of the things that we can practice as mature Christians is to, is to find the gold um, on, the, on, the, on the kind of the, the ridge of the, of the cloud. So to find, where is the sun in this? Or to find the wheat amidst the, the chaff. And so, um, like whether it's with sons and daughters in our own lives, like what is the good even in the midst of the bad that we see? Uh, and I think in some ways that can help us to, to see real people in the midst of something, to see desire in the midst of it. Like there's actually lots of good stuff even in the midst of some really funky garbage that's out there. Um, and I think, it, I think we're going to be exposed to some garbage. And so I think to, to be practicing seeing real people and seeing the real desire that's underneath that and the real desire for love and intimacy underneath that um, can help us to have compassion in a world that uh, is lost and confused about sex. Um, with that said, I'm, I'm a big fan of, um, of knowing ourselves, getting filters for our computers if we need them, um, putting boundaries on when and where we watch certain shows, um, having limits on, you know, like, I don't, I, there are certain actors who I think are hilarious, but I'll never watch their movies um, on, unfiltered because they, they're just so crude, I feel slimed afterwards. Um, there are movies and shows I really want to see, but I've heard enough about them. I go, I just don't think that would be good for me. I love what, what Paul in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, when he, he gives us three admonitions, he's like, everything's permissible for you. Not everything's beneficial. I don't want to be mastered by anything, and not everything's edifying. And I think we can make some just, that's a general principle for us, that we can apply individually for ourselves and with, in, in groups of, being, of knowing each other to say, like, okay, I'm allowed, I'm a part of this culture, but what's good for me? What's going to be beneficial? Am I mastered by this? And is this edifying for other people? Um, so I hope that answers some of the questions. And you guys are kicking my butt with these questions. It's, um, should I fully get past my sex issues before dating? That's a great question, too. I, I don't know what your sex issues are, so um, uh, I probably can't give you an adequate answer, but I will say that um, perfection is not required for intimacy. and for I mean, I mean that relationally in that sense. Um, what I, what, I, what I would kind of in general say to this is, is that um, this is a great question to ask to somebody who knows you well, um, who's of the same gender, and who will tell you the truth. Uh, I think, like, I can't, I'm convinced of this. I can't be the husband I want to be without good men who know me well and who are walking with me in my life. And I don't think that women can be the wives they want to be without good women who know them well and who are walking with them in their lives. So I think the same applies to dating. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, let me go to another person's questions here. Um, how are we doing? Great. We got like 10 minutes left. 
Hey, Brian or Montreal, are there any questions left in the basket right there? Empty? Okay. So transgender individuals face higher rates of family estrangement, job loss, housing discrimination, and homelessness, and are 25 times as likely to attempt suicide. What do you think Jesus feels about their marginalization, and what should the church do to elevate their social perception and self-perception as worthy humans made in the image of God? This is a great question, and it's timely, because um, what, what the issue of homosexuality was yesterday, the issue transgender is today. Um, I think one of, the, one of the first things is even the kind of the awareness that whoever wrote this question has about um, the, the, the struggles that people who are transgender experience. Um, I think reading some real stories or knowing or listening to real stories of men and women who struggle with transgenderism is a, is a good place to start because um, I don't know anybody who struggles with transgenderism or homosexuality for that matter who like just woke up one day and says, I got an idea, and then kind of walked down that road. Um, some, some as early as like really little boys and girls began to experience, I just read a, a story of a woman who was saying like, you know, as long as I can remember, I always wanted to be a boy. Um, and w when my friends started playing with uh, Barbie dolls, I had no interest. I, didn't, I wanted to be seen as boyish as I could. And when her body started to develop, she, she was embarrassed. She didn't want to look like a girl. Um, so I think kind of having, I think Jesus has compassion on that. I think Jesus cares deeply for people's experience. Um, with that said, um, like I said before about identity and intimacy, like if we're going to truly love people, we, we do have to, um, to know their identity. And the Christian faith teaches that um, identity is not just something that's individually subjective, but it is um, uh, extrinsically objective, that God has created each one of us and he knows us. And so even for men and women who struggle with transgenderism, except in a very, very small percentage of people who experience a, um, a biological abnormality, um, that started in the womb, um, every cell in a, in a person's body has the, uh, either has uh, chromosomes that are male or female. And whatever a person may want to do or, want to, or feels kind of subjectively about who they are, their identity, as, uh, their gender, um, they still have that imprint in every cell of their body, and that's by God's design. And so I think we as Christians have a, have a tough job of walking with a, a real kind of tension and tenderness in how we interact on a personal level with individual people dealing with transgenderism. I think we'd be sensitive to where they've been and what they walk in and what they experience. I think we'd be sensitive to their feelings about uh, who they are. Um, but I think it would be a disservice to, to, uh, to any man or woman to give a thumbs up to affirming an identity that's not uh, consistent with who, who God made them to be. Um, so that's my answer. It's a, it's a quick answer, and I hope it's, I, it's worth a lot more discussion, um, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for time's sake. Um, what advice would you give to someone with commitment issues or fears while dating? Um, I'd, I'd say sit down with someone and have a good long conversation um, and maybe some prayer about where those, what those fears are about. Um, a lot of times the fears we have or fears of commitment, difficulties like that can be rooted in our own experiences of relationships, either when we were children um, or earlier on in life. Maggie Gallagher is a, an author and researcher who did the first longitudinal study of children of divorce. Back in the 70s when I was a kid, the general uh, teaching that parents got about divorce, for instance, was the hardest time for kids with divorce is when the divorce happens. But if a mom and a dad walk through it amiably and really look out for the kids, the kids will be fine. 
Maggie Gallagher did a longitudinal study to, to research, is that actually true? And what she found was, yes, kids seem to rebound socially and relationally um, uh, when the parents work together through a divorce. But when those sons and daughters reach the age where they start thinking about marriage, um, everything flips upside down. They're, the percentage of relational concerns and fears and abuses and things like that they experience relative to other guys and girls around them who didn't come from divorced families is, I mean, it's night and day. And so um, that's one example of, some, of where some fears of commitment can come. So, um, I mean, there are, there are a lot of others, but I encourage you to sit down with somebody who can just help talk you through that and figure that stuff out. Cool, and I have one question uh, left, and we have about five minutes. So, um, and then after this question, I'd like you to talk, I think you brought some like flyers about events that are coming up yeah. and then programs. So I'm gonna ask you this question and then if you could just go into um, programs at Regeneration and those events. Uh, so last question, uh, how do we create an environment within the church that has a healthy level of transparency when it comes to sexual sin? Yeah, I, lo- I love this question. Um, I, was, I was thinking a minute ago about um, why I tend to answer longer than the soundbite, and I think it's in part because as a, as a guy growing up uh, and a guy who spent my, my whole life in the church, the kinds of answers I got in response to the sexual struggles I was dealing with felt like sound bites, and they always felt like they missed the mark. And I think that contributed to some of my feelings of like, maybe I'm not really a Christian because it seems like the sound bites are working for everybody else. Um, I now have spent the last almost 18 years walking with men and women, uh, largely Christians who have spent lots of time in the church, and I found out I'm by far not the only person who wrestled inside church and felt those kinds of things. So I think it's really important um, in this in this age and in our time to, to have transparency happening in the church in relation to sexual struggles. So one of the things I'd, I'd, I'd say is um, have conversations like this. And I think among men and among women, um, I'd almost say like begin with the assumption that there are sexual struggles and go from there. Um, like I, I, uh, I'll, I, can, I can speak as a guy. Like when guys get together, I don't know what it's like here, but my, I have great friends. They know what I do. We've had great hard conversations. But guys' tendency is often to move to stuff that's just the easier stuff to talk about. We're going to talk about sports. We'll talk about our jobs. We'll talk about how busy we are. Um, it takes a lot of intentionality to say, well, okay, how, how are you doing with sexual temptation in your life? Um, because it's, it's a tougher area to get into, and it's a tougher area to stay into. And then we have the conversation about that, and the next time we get together, like we want to go anywhere but there. So I found it's really helpful to have explicit conversations about how are we going to talk about this together. So whether it's in a small group or an accountability group, I'm a big fan of intentionally getting with other people who say, like, every time we get together, maybe not, sorry, not every time, let's get together on Monday nights, and every time we do, one of the questions we're going to answer is, how are you doing in your, in your, in your thought life sexually? How are you doing with your eyes sexually? How are you doing with your body sexually? And we're going to do that each week, not because we're going to try to beat each other up, because we want to be transparent in this area. I think that's that kind of, and, and I think we live in a culture where there's enough stuff going on out there um, that if we're not doing that in here, we're actually doing a disservice to each other. And so even if there's nothing going on, well, great, there's nothing going on this time. <laughs> so the other thing is, um, like if you're in a position of leadership and you, like you lead a, a Bible study you, or you, you have some people you're mentoring or you preach sometimes, like this is an easy one. Like when the examples you use, don't use the easy examples. Like use sexual examples. I mean, I mean, so I don't mean being graphic. I know that, you know, they're kids in, in a service, but, but I mean like, okay, so, hey, so next time you're struggling with pride, dot, 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 dot. Not that pride is a small deal. It's a huge deal. Um, 
But why not also like another of the kind of cardinal sins? Why not lust? Okay, so next time you struggle with lust, um, next time you're dealing with pornography, next time you're tempted to sleep with your girlfriend or boyfriend, like I think just like bringing that up, I think in the con- in, in a in a larger setting or in a mentor relationship, those who hear you, if you're in a position of leadership, will go, oh, he just mentioned that. It sounds like he knows that the people deal with that stuff, and I deal with that stuff. So he's a guy I could talk to, or she's a girl I could talk to about that. So does that make sense? Um, okay, so let me segue into that. Um, I've, I've said a couple times, shameless plug for regeneration. Uh, we'd be happy to continue any of these conversations or try to get after some of these questions on a deeper level with you. Um, we've, we've been at, uh, around for many, many years, but we'd, we love to walk with men and women who are dealing with just different sexual and relational struggles, whether it's with intimacy or issues of identity. And uh, we do that through offering one-to-one, we call it spiritual coaching, and we do that because we don't want you to think we're, we're licensed therapists. We actually do have therapists who work on our team, but they do not work on our team in that capacity. Um, we do kind of a mixture of just kind of listening and spiritual direction and healing prayer, uh, really just to walk beside you. And we also have groups that we run. Jen mentioned Living Waters, which is an in-depth healing prayer um, program. It begins every fall. I've talked a couple times about the men's group we have for helping men who are wanting to kind of grow in their own, exchanging lust for love. And then um, there's some other group, groups like that. We also have a group for wives, where if, the, if a husband's really struggling with some sexual sin and the wife's just looking for some support and how to support him and have good boundaries and those kinds of things. The wives group can be a great help to that. And um, uh, this November, I want to invite you to a special event that we're co-hosting with Grace Fellowship Church in Timonium. Um, a lot of the stuff that I've talked about today, I learned from a friend of mine, Christopher West, who's going to come and do an evening Friday, November 10th. Um, it's called God, Sex, and something, it's something like the title tonight. I probably, I, I, uh, it's on the back table. It's on the back table. So there are some flyers on the back table for it, though. Um, Christopher is a, is, a, is, a, is a Catholic brother, a deep thinker, huge heart, gifted man, gifted communicator. Um, and uh, um, his ability to kind of unpack God's original design and overlay it with God's heart for us today through Christ is just beautiful. So I invite you to come and invite, you know, all the people you know to, to come. It's really going to be a, a fantastic night. And I think, you, I think, I literally think you will walk away from the evening change. And I, and I, I I'm not prone to hyperbole like that. I mean, this is, it's really, really deep and rich stuff that I think will bless you. So, hey, thank you for letting me be with you and um, your honest and good questions. And uh, let's keep the conversation going, okay? Yeah, thanks so much, Josh. Yeah. I'm sure that like this is like kind of wears on you. No, it's <laughs> so a joy. thank you for your time and for answering all those questions about all these different topics. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, if anyone is interested, um, you can talk to me about connecting to Regeneration, or um, you can contact Regeneration directly. Um, But there's definitely resources out there um, for these types of struggles. Um, So, Josh, do you mind just praying us out? Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to. (laughs) Father, I want to pray for these, my brothers and my sisters, and I want to pray the same thing for myself. um, Lord, when... uh, your image in us got marred because of sin, uh, sins done to us, sins that our forefathers committed, Lord, sins that we've done. Uh, you didn't just uh, decide to do away with us. Lord, you came to rescue us. Lord, we're not a piece of art that you just crumpled up and threw away. We are a, a piece of art that you are meticulously wanting to clean up and restore. And so I pray that you would be about that work in each of us and that, Lord, where we need it, you would be opening us up to know, um, to give you our yes and to say yes to you in the work you want to do, whether that means confessing something to somebody, bringing an area of our lives to you that maybe we just haven't really 
talked with you about before, um, reaching out to get help from regeneration or somewhere else, um, or maybe just uh, even reaching out to a friend or loved one and uh, seeking to care for them and what they're struggling with. So Lord, would you lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one and all his schemes? And apply to us, Lord, afresh this day uh, your good, self-giving love that you not only demonstrated, but you actually lived out on the cross and in your resurrection and through the giving of your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, thank you guys.